0: I don't give a damn what anybody (laughs) thinks. I mean, isn't that the beauty of age? It's like, I have less time on this planet and more to say and more to do. And I feel an urgency every day to do it, to create, to get done, whatever my particular little mission is on this planet, I have to finish it. And people pleasing is the death of
1: art. That was Roseanne Cash, and this is Shiro's, a podcast with a mission to turn up the volume of women's voices in music across genres and generations. I'm Carmel Holt, and what you're about to hear is a previously aired interview from my syndicated public radio show, Shiro's Radio. Shiro's is a deep dive into the experiences and perspectives of women and gender expansive folks in a still overwhelmingly male dominated music industry. It's a space where we discuss challenges and triumphs, how far we've come and how far we still have to go. Telling our stories is the first step to making music better for everyone. When you think about the soundtrack of your life or even a chapter of your life, chances are it's a playlist made up of lots of songs by many different artists and bands. And similarly, when the tables are turned and artists are asked about the music that shaped them and soundtracked their lives, what's fascinating to consider is how sometimes albums in their own catalog tell their stories. Anniversaries are a perfect moment for reflecting on this, and it's rare that an album anniversary also marks an anniversary of a romance. Romantic and creative partnership, as well as being an album of songs that document the beginning of that chapter. This is a huge part of what makes the 30th anniversary of Roseanne Cash's eighth album, The Wheel, so significant. And as you're about to hear, The Wheel contains within it the incredibly romantic story of Roseanne Cash and its co-producer, her now husband and creative partner, John Leventhal, falling in love and beginning a journey that continues to this day as partners in all things. It also Holds all of the complexity of the time of a woman experiencing the rage and pain of leaving her first marriage, worry about her kids, parting ways from Nashville, both literally and figuratively, to live and work in New York City, disillusionment with a very sexist music industry, and then in her mid 30s, finding the courage and the inner fire to rise from the ashes and start anew. The daughter of the legendary Johnny Cash and his first wife, Vivian, she's now been a treasured and much lost. Voice in music and the arts for 45 years and counting as a multi Grammy winning songwriter, singer, composer, storyteller, producer, and best selling author. As we celebrate the 30th anniversary of The Wheel and its newly expanded deluxe edition and all it represents, I'm thrilled to welcome back Shiro of Shiro's Roseanne Cash as this week's Shiro in the Spotlight. Well, holy shit. (laughs) Happy 30th anniversary, Roseanne Cash. Oh my
0: God. And it went by like five years. I realized that when this record came out, when The Wheel came out 30 years ago, that I was just a few years older than my daughter. Wow. And it just kind of put everything in a sweet perspective, you know, that I've been with John that long that this record that I hadn't listened to in a really long time. And when I did finally listen to it, I was kind of overcome with the longing and the emotional violence and all the nature metaphors. I feel like I've re-owned it after 30 years.
1: That's incredible. I was sitting with your liner notes and I immediately started to cry. Oh, I was so moved by it. And I thought to myself, like this on its own is such an incredible love story. Like we could do a podcast series just on this record and just on this chapter of your life.
0: Well, I guess it's unusual to capture sonically the moment people fall in love you know, and exactly. even though that moment went over several months, that's all in these songs and it's on the master recording. And here we are 30 years later, you know, I'm so fortunate.
1: Well, we're so fortunate that we get to share it with you and relive it with you and take a walk down memory lane and also like have it be so present for us right now. I was thinking that maybe for those that haven't had the opportunity like I have to sit with your liner notes and think about the story. Could you set the scene for us, where you were, what it was like in 1991 when you arrived in New York City? Yeah. Well,
0: going back even further in the mid 80s, I had this album out called King's Record Shop and it was very successful. It was the first time a woman had four number one singles off one album on the country charts. And I had a lot of leverage with the record label because of that. And I said, I want a lot of money and I want to produce the next record myself. (laughs) And I got both. And my marriage was falling apart. My marriage to Rodney Crowell. Just bit by bit, it was shattering. And I was writing all of these songs that I didn't totally realize were about that outcome. I just thought we were having a hard time. So I made this album called Interiors and it was very dark acoustic album. And I produced it myself. And I thought it was the most true work that I had ever done. And I delivered it to the record label to Sony in Nashville. And they said, we can't do anything with this. Country radio is not going to play these songs. And I was devastated. And I thought about it for three months. And I went back in and I said, You got to let me go because this is going to get worse. And they said, we'll miss you. That was Hmm. it. 12 years. Hmm. We'll miss you. Wow. So they transferred me to the New York division and I had met John Leventhal and I was becoming besotted and bewildered. (laughs) And my marriage did end. I moved to New York City in 91 John, native New Yorker, he was here. I loved the work he had done with Sean Colden and with Mark Cohn. And, you know, he was constantly in my thoughts. And, you know, I had been hit by a lightning bolt, really. But still, there was all this despair about my marriage, you know, and I had kids. It was just awful. And one night I went to see Leo Kotke, At the old Bottom Line, one of the greatest listening rooms in the country at the time. And before he came out or at the intermission, I forget, I was just sitting there, just despondent. And I took a napkin and I wrote these lyrics to Seventh Avenue. And I thought, well, this is a way into John Leventhal. And I showed him the lyrics. I said, do you want to write the music? And he said, yeah. And then I said, I have these other songs. I had written The Wheel. I had written Sleeping in Paris. I had written From the Ashes. And I said, they're very elemental. And he kind of looked confused. And he said, but are they good songs? And I said, yeah, they're good. I said, do you want to produce an album? And he said, I'll co-produce it with you. So that started that. And I had, what, six songs, seven songs of my own. And then we wrote a few together, like The Truth About You, Tears Falling Down. And that process of making that record, you know, we started kind of awkwardly. And by the end of the, making the record, I was sitting on his lap at the console. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was 93. The album came out in 95. We got married. Wow. Wow.
1: What a story. Like I said, tears, tears. You're an easy mark, my friend. I know, I know. So I wanted to play a clip and I thought maybe today we could either start with the first song that you wrote together. Seventh Avenue. Let's start with that one. Okay, let's start with Seventh Avenue. So you've already sort of set up the song. Is there anything else you want to tell us before we go into it? Well, I had
0: moved from a 6,000 square foot house in Nashville, you know, with a big diamond ring and a Range Rover and all of this stuff that I was unhappy with. And I moved into this tiny apartment on Morton Street in the West Village, and it overlooked 7th Avenue.
2: I gave you what you wanted safe inside this room now the candles burn all night without
1: At Seventh Avenue off the wheel. The 30th anniversary of Roseanne Cash's eighth album. She's here with us on Shiro's, And I'm Carmel Holt. First song that you guys wrote together, you and John Leventhal. So when you said that you thought that that song would be the way in to him, why did you think that it would be the way in? Well,
0: I knew that he was a great songwriter and that he didn't write lyrics And I knew it was revealing, that it Mm. was showing him where I was at the time. And I was ready to start revealing myself to him. And then he wrote this beautiful, melancholy melody to it. You know, it's like he got it instantly. He didn't write a rock melody to it. And, you know, I got to say that a lot of people say, oh, man, that's my favorite song on the album. There's just something seamless about
1: it. How did the two of you initially meet? Rodney introduced us. (laughs)
0: It was kind of a crazy story. So when I was still married to Rodney, around the time I was starting to make interiors, Rodney's record label sent him the tapes of two different artists and asked him to produce one of them. Which one do you want to produce? So he played me both demo tapes. He said, I really can't decide, you know. There's this one guy and then there's this other guy, Jim Lauderdale. And I said... Oh, God, I really like Jim Lauderdale. And Ronnie said, yeah, but he comes as a package with this guy, John Leventhal. And I said, great, you know, tell him yes. It's great. The demos are great. The songs are great. So they came down from New York to Nashville, where we were living. And I swear to God, Carmel, they came into the house. I was upstairs. I walked down. I saw John. And I said to myself, ah, my life is going to get so complicated.
1: <laughs> you really were struck by lightning. I was. Okay, so you wrote Seventh Avenue together and once you convinced him that the songs were not just elemental, but they were good and he wanted to co-produce with you. That detail stood out to me, too. In the story, I loved the fact that he was immediately like, no, this is a partnership. I'm not going to produce you. We're going to co-produce this. Did it hit you the same way?
0: Yeah, but he also had an ulterior reason for saying that, which is that he knew I had had a really successful career. And if this record failed, he didn't want the sole responsibility.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's amazing. It should be pointed out that, like you said, you had produced the albums before. How rare it is still for women to self-produce and to be in the production chair.
0: Yeah, not only that, but women engineers, women monitor mixes, women at the top levels of executive at the labels. It's a little bit abysmal. There is an organization called Women in the Mix, and a friend of mine in San Francisco is part of that, and trying to bring more young women into production aspects of record making. Because, I mean, it's something like 3%. It's ridiculous.
1: It's kind of stuck there. (laughs)
0: Yeah. One of my monitor engineers is a young woman and I just adore her. And she's so meticulous. She's the one who's in Women in the Mix.
1: I thought for our Shiro's conversation today, as part of it, that we could talk just for a moment about any reflections that you had about who you were as a woman at that time in the music industry and kind of putting it up against how you are now, how you see things and your level of confidence. Any reflections there if you could kind of like put those side by side?
0: Yeah, I mean, the
1: record industry is a boys club. And it kind of
0: always has been, you know, thank God for people like Taylor Swift and Beyonce who are owning it out there. Cause I I think that that changes the equation for all women and, you know, outside the music industry, like Greta Gerwig, you know, she made a billion dollars on Barbie. Gotta give it up for these girls who are changing it for all the girls who will come after. But it was not easy. Radio programmers would not play two women back to back So if you had a record out, you really had to, you know, work to get it fit into a playlist. And they made up reasons for that. Oh, it's disrespectful to put two women back to back. And I mean, I've told this story before that I went into a marketing meeting for my first Sony album and I was the only woman in the marketing meeting. There were a lot of men in there. And the head of the record label said to me, but the room at large was listening, he said, our chief marketing tool for this album is to make you fuckable. And it was so disconcerting and embarrassing, humiliating and reductive, but it got my hackles up a bit. I didn't say anything. You know how you get nervous in those situations and you're scared to say anything. Well, I was anyway. But afterwards I thought, man, I am good enough to play on the A team. I don't have to be the B team of, quote, women songwriters, women's music, you know. I hate that when they separate us out, like we're a B team. Mm -hmm. So I showed less skin. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to play that game. And I just focused on being a songwriter. Some things, of course, have changed. And there are women out there who are really owning it. But In some ways, they're still pushing a rock up a mountain. It's still an uphill battle.
1: And how about how it feels to you personally as an artist, how you felt back in the early 1990s around the time of The Wheel, if you could compare how you felt about yourself and your work and your confidence level at that time versus where you are today.
0: Yeah, I mean, I did did have real dips in my confidence and insecurity. And... You know, the change from having this successful country career to being... out. I mean, Interiors got nominated for a folk Grammy, so it was clear I was moving out of that sphere. And then I felt like I was starting from zero again, and I was really insecure. I got invited to do this big touring festival, multi-artist, and five years before, they would have put me on the main stage, but they asked me to play on the small stage, and Um. I turned it down because it was just, you know, I had my colleagues on the main stage. And then at the label at Sony, I started seeing that they were putting a lot of money into marketing of a couple of my contemporaries, and it hurt my feelings. And yeah, it rattled me. So I went into the head of the label then after the wheel, and I said, you got to let me go. And it was kind of the same thing. I wouldn't say they were happy that I left, but they realized that it was time. But then luckily Capital wanted me and I moved over to Capitol Records. But I was shaken. I mean, there are things on the wheel that I listen to and I go, I could have sung that better. I was being so self-conscious, you know. What was mm. I worried about? I wanted to impress John Leventhal and I was, you know, holding back or whatever. But I think going through so many changes at once, getting divorced, moving, changing labels, falling in love... Worried about my kids. All of that at once really shook my self-confidence. I had to build back from zero.
1: And how about where you are today? Oh, and where I am today. I don't give a
0: damn what anybody (laughs) thinks. (laughs) I mean, isn't that the beauty of age? It's like I have less time on this planet And more to say and more to do. And I feel an urgency every day to do it, to create, to get done. Whatever my particular little mission is on this planet, I have to finish it. And people pleasing is death. And, you know, second guessing is part of it. But getting outside myself and trying to predict what an audience would want is just the death of art.
1: Why don't we play another track off of the wheel? I talked to a lot of artists and most of them are like you. You know, they don't like looking back once something's in the rear view, they leave it there. And it's only an event like an anniversary and especially one that's so personally significant as this one, because it's so interwoven with your love story and the story of your marriage to John. Is there any song on here that you can point to that you discovered something new about now?
0: Well, The Truth About You... I mean, I always knew it was intimate, but I'm struck by how intimate it is, almost to like a degree that I go, oh, my God, you know, (laughs) I don't have any clothes on on this song because it's Just me and John on the track, just my voice and his guitar and the harmonica. And I think a little percussion. So he was playing all of that. And I gave those lyrics to him, like not just gave them to him so he could write the melody, but I gave of myself in those lyrics to him. And I was telling him that I knew him deeper than knowing in the present, that I knew him on a cellular, spiritual level. I remember I was very shy about giving him those lyrics. But anyway, in the present time, I listen to it now and I go, oh my God, that's a woman who is so full of longing and love. A young woman who's so full of longing and love.
2: Know the truth about you, babe. Know the stories you tell. I can feel your heart locked up inside you. swear I know you so well. When the wind blows out across the water and we stand here in this light, all our secrets fall like raindrops between us. And I know the truth.
1: The truth about you from The Wheel now celebrating its 30th anniversary. We have Roseanne Cash with us on Shiros and I'm Carmel Holt. It is just so sweet to be taking this trip with you, Roseanne, and you still have so much energy to produce and to mm. do new things. And you just launched the reissue of this record with John solely going independent and having your own yeah. label.
0: Well, I had these reversion clauses in my contracts with my labels that my master recordings would return to me mm. after 30 years. Whoa! Nobody signs that kind of contract anymore. By the way, <laughs> everybody owns the recordings from day one. So you know, I was stuck in these 1980, 1990 contracts, and wow, I got the wheel back. It returned to me, and. I have to say, I didn't expect how that would feel. You know, when I knew it was coming, it's like, oh, great. I've got the master recording coming back to me. You know, I'll have that for my kids to sell on eBay one day or whatever. Sure. (laughs) And then... I felt overwhelmed with the fact that I owned it, that it was mine. And it was like talking to my manager and to John, you know, what should we do with this? Let's start a record label. Well, I don't know how to run a record label. Well, there are some people who do, and you could have your own imprint. So John and I formed Rumble Strip Records, and 30 Tigers is distributing it and doing the administrative work. And the reason we came up with that name is that John, during the pandemic, recorded his first solo album, which is going to come out January 26th. And he called it Rumble Strip. I said, well, that is a great name for a label, too. So his Rumble Strip is going to come out on Rumble Strip. But, you know, wow. now I'm getting all these masters back. And in the future, it's possible I could reissue other words. Some guy said to me on Instagram or some social media site, he said, but what are you doing putting out these old things? That's just a money grab, you know, put out some new records. It's like a money grab. Are you kidding me? <laughs> There's no <laughs> money to be made from these. It's purely out of love and the fact that I own it and revisiting it in a really deep way.
1: I mean, 100% also, like think about that. You mentioned Taylor Swift earlier. Think about what she's been doing. I mean, yeah. every single time that she gets something back, she puts it back out in her own way. People don't understand, I think, the depth of the meaning of that, especially, I hate to say it because I hate this phrase, too, as a woman. No, but you're right. Music. You're right. But it's true. It's, you know, it's true.
0: It's like we're not under the purview of these big men at the labels anymore to get your masters back to own it. It is a big deal for women because it's not something we had access to in the past.
1: That's right. When we were talking last, I can't believe that was 2019, we talked a little bit about your Shiro's playlist and you put Joni Mitchell's Night Ride Home. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You and I got into this whole conversation about Joni Mm. and it led us to talking about how much of yourself you felt comfortable revealing in your work.
0: Yeah. I mean, Blue was really the moment I realized a woman could be a songwriter. And not only that, realized that she could write about her inner life in a poetic way, turn it into something artful and put it out in the public sphere and own it. And it's legitimate and it's high art. Well, I don't know if the wheel is high art, but... It is that moment when I plumbed some depths, but also interiors was too. You know, I realized over time that it's almost a trope to say the personal is the universal, but it really Hmm. is. It's like, I'm not a unique human being on the planet. Whatever I've experienced, other people have experienced. And that Mm. resonance and that connection is what we're hoping for. You know, if somebody says to me, which they do, this record got me through my divorce, This record was around when I was having a hard time. I mean, even Black Cadillac, which was kind Mm. of the apotheosis of me, turning myself inside out to create something because it was all about the death of my parents and mourning. And, you know, a hospice nurse said to me after Black Cadillac came out, she said, we give this out to our families. That means so much to me. And I felt very shy about revealing all of that, the depth of what grief is, because it's not just sad. I mean, it's a lot of things. It's anger, it's release, it's everything. But Like I said, I'm not the only one. That's the way we connect.
1: So well said. When you look back, was there any moment on this album emotionally that you felt like was a new level of exposing yourself or allowing your emotions to come through in song? I think you said that Roses in the Fire was the angriest song that Mm. you wrote. I think it's the angriest song I've ever written. (laughs) And it's (laughs) true. I did throw his damn
0: roses in the fire. (laughs) It's like, this isn't going to cut it, man. Not... John's (laughs)
1: the ex-husband. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, Rose Mm -hmm. is in the fire. Yeah. It's not only deeply angry, but there's also some compassion in it. It says another woman's on the telephone, pick it up, tell her you're home. And then when I said, I see your face like broken glass. So I recognize his own pain, but there are other things that are revealing about lust that are super revealing. My song, You Won't Let Me In, you know, it starts out with I'm sleeping in your bed. But I had written that song as just a folk song on my guitar, and I gave it to John when we were making the record, and he just put this sexy kind of R&B rhythm to it that I still like listening to that song. That song, it really still moves me a lot.
2: I'm staying in your house I'm sleeping in your bed I'm walking through your dreams I'm dancing through your head I'm calling from the street
1: You Won't Let Me In from The Wheel, 30th anniversary of that album, out now in a deluxe edition with some live recordings too. What was that like going back to mm. some of those live performances?
0: That's a little nerve wracking, you know, it's like, oh God, did I miss that note? Does my skirt look weird? We're, you <laughs> <know>? <laughs> Why did I say that stupid patter? I can be so overcritical about live recordings. In fact, I'm not even sure if I listen to the Austin City Limits, at least not all of it. I just said to my manager and John, I said, does it sound good? And they go, yeah, it sounds good. So I said, okay. That's a lot of trust. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I know John would tell me he can be brutal sometimes.
1: Do you remember what your experience of performing live was at that time? How you felt about being a live performer versus Mm. your relationship with your audience now?
0: Well, I never started with wanting to be a performer. I started with wanting to just be a songwriter. I was shy. I didn't think I needed the attention of being a performer. I knew the lifestyle was really brutal from my dad. And it's not to say I became a performer by default, but one thing led to another. A demo led to a record, led to me living a life as a performer. And in the beginning, I just thought, well, this is just about being judged, It's just you walk out on stage with a knot in your stomach to be judged. But over time, that's really changed for me. I realize it's about energy exchange and about community and that they, the audience comes for something and I come for something and we meet and I try to sing to the far corners and be inclusive and not just do it as if I'm standing in front of a mirror, but to really show up. And then at the end of the night, it's washed away, you know, like a sand painting. It's gone. And the temporal nature of it makes it more precious. And also now, at this point in my life, when I'm really ramping down on touring, every time I do walk on stage, I think this could be the last time. Embody every one of these songs. It may not happen again. And not, oh God, I'm going to tear up saying this, but not that long ago, I was on stage singing Blue Moon with Heartache which I've sung for 45 years now. And I thought to myself, this could be the last time that the person who wrote this song sings this song. Just take that in, you know? And I was telling myself, take it in. And it was a profound moment for me.
1: Rose, you always make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) You know what makes
0: me cry is the preciousness of time. Yeah. You know, and when you get to a point where what's in front of you is shorter than what's behind you,
1: everything becomes more precious. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. Were there any of these songs that were a part of your set list that endured over the years as well? I know that you hadn't really gone back and listened to the record per se, but what song or songs on the wheel have become mainstays for you in your live sets?
0: Well, not in every set, but you know, over the years I've continued to do The Wheel. Over the years I've continued to do Sleeping in Paris, definitely, and Seventh Avenue. Those three have really stuck. And if I don't do The Wheel, invariably someone comes up to me after and says, you didn't do The Wheel. He says, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> it means a lot to some people. But yeah. now I'm going out next year starting in January and, you know, we're going to do a lot of the songs and I did it at SF jazz. I did a show of revisiting the wheel. Actually, we called it Reinventing the Wheel because...
1: <laughs> Clever. I like that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it was really fun Like to do You Won't Let Me In. And I did Roses in the Fire. And afterwards, I said to John, I'm never doing that song again. You know, I sound like an idiot. And he goes, nah, no, no, nah, no. Nah. He goes, let me work on it. <laughs> let me work on the arrangement. <laughs> so I guess I'll do that too.
1: Yeah, I was wondering which song you'd kept at arm's length the longest that you hadn't touched, you know, since those days.
0: Maybe Fire of the Newly Alive. Some of those lyrics, I think, are just a little too navel-gazing. But, you know, it's an accurate document of the moment. In what way? Well, it's accurate in that it was how I was feeling, you know. I was consumed by this sense of rebirth, you know, a new life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I may have gone too deep into the metaphors, the transformative language, but
1: I don't think so. I mean, again, you know, like listening back to it, getting ready to talk to you today, kind of circling back to the beginning of the conversation where you're telling the story about when you presented the songs to John and you said they're elemental. Yeah. I love that thread, the thread of all of these nature and kind of spiritual elements in in the songs, you know, and they're timeless.
0: Well, thank you. That's encouraging. There are a lot of violent nature metaphors, you know, fires, storms, rain, and I get it. That's where we go to reflect the violence that's going on inside.
1: But there's also a lot of rising up out of that, you know, and that kind of dichotomy and interplay of destruction and creation and the dissolution, and then the birth of something new, which I think also speaks to that idea of the wheel, which is also such a spiritual symbol.
0: Yeah. You know, the Rubin Museum here in New York has incredible Buddhist art. And there are these paintings of the wheel of life and death that are so powerful. You know, all of the stages that we go through on our own wheel. And yeah, I mean, I guess it's a legitimate metaphor.
1: (laughs) Exactly. We have Roseanne Cash with us on Shiro's and we're celebrating the 30th anniversary of the wheel. Since I saw you last, you got another big award. You Mm. were the first female composer to receive the McDowell Medal awarded since 1960. And it's for someone who has made an outstanding contribution to American culture. Congratulations on that. You were awarded that in 2021 during the pandemic. Talk to us about that and talk to us about getting awards and accolades that recognize you as a woman in music or being the first woman to fill in the blank.
0: That's important. You know, when that watershed moment happens. You know, I was Mm -hmm. the first female composer to get that medal. That will always exist. That will always be noted, you know, in the history of the McDowell medal. And I'm incredibly proud of that. Of course, then you think, well, (laughs) there were a lot of composers who came before me, you know, (laughs) what took you so long? But at the same time, I'm really proud that I broke that little ceiling.
1: Absolutely. What other ceilings do you feel looking back that you're proud to have broken because you've broken a lot and you've laid some pathways for others?
0: I never think about that, Carmel. I look at young women today and think, wow, like some of the women we just talked about, like Billie Eilish, like Phoebe Bridgers. I look at these young women, I think, wow, they're so brave and they're so owning what they do without any fear of reprisal or judgment from men or from outside of themselves. And it's so inspiring to me. Hmm. You know, and then I feel like, well, I don't know that I broke any barriers. What I did do is I kept my head down and showed up for work and didn't get pulled off the track by, you know, kind of garden variety male bullshit that went on in the record industry. And and some of it was scary, really scary. And I saw some women like just say, I can't, this is too hard, I can't do this and get dismantled by it. It's not to say I'm any better because I'm sure that a lot of people's experiences were much worse, but it was not easy, you know, to walk into a radio station And have the programmer run his hand down over your ass, Uh, you know, as part of the quid pro quo of getting your record played and then trying to get out of the situation. And then, you know, see Taylor Swift, like, sue the guy publicly and win. It's like, man, I wish I had done that.
1: (laughs) First of all, I would disagree that you have definitely kicked some doors down and also... Like the fact that you are here and you're still making art and that you have not let the ageist, misogynist, sexist world that we live in stop you? No,
0: I haven't. I mean, it's frustrating and it's painful sometimes, but I have not let it pull me off the track.
1: We have Roseanne Cash with us on Shiros and I'm Carmel Holt. You had Mary Chapin Carpenter and Patty Larkin on this album. In fact, the album begins with The Wheel and their two voices with you. Talk to us a little bit about that time. Was mm. that the first time that you met them and having other women to collaborate with in the studio and on your records?
0: Oh, I had known Mary Chapin for a long time, you know, she had been part of the Nashville scene too. And mm-hmm. I asked her to sing on it. And Patty Larkin, I didn't know well, but John had been working with her and I loved her voice. And we just thought Chapin and Patty would sound great together. And I just have this memory of them standing in the studio far back from the mic and just letting. These beautiful harmonies just wail through the room. I mean, it just, it's so great on the record. There weren't many other women on the record, it's true, but that was a moment. That was a beautiful moment.
1: Is that meaningful to you to have women collaborators? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And on my last album, She Remembers
0: Everything, Sam Phillips and I wrote this song together. I just adore her. I love her musical sensibility. I love who she is. And we had been talking for a long time about writing together. And I said, okay, I have some lyrics, do you wanna do it? So I sent them to her and she wrote the melody and it became the title song for the album. And this reminds me that I wanna do this again
1: with her. (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And I love that on side three on the double album, on the expanded edition of The Wheel, you have side three and side four, are the live recordings and the Live from Austin City Limits features a cover of Lucinda Williams' Crescent City, which yeah. I love. It's such a great version of that song. You like shout her out. She's in the audience, yeah. I think. She came yeah. to see me
0: play it. It was so fun. Yeah. But she's also on the Columbia Radio Hour, which is yeah. also part of the live recordings on the double album of the yeah. real, She and David Byrne and I did this thing. I think it doesn't exist anymore, the Columbia Radio Hour, but, you know, Lucinda and I have been friends for 35 years. She was texting me yesterday. I call her the sticker queen because she knows how to make all of these crazy stickers. And I said, Lucinda, I can't figure any of that out. <laughs>
1: She's so funny. She is. She's so funny. So, Rose, we close every Shiro's episode now by giving our guests the Shiro's Magic Wand, Mm -hmm. where you get to wave the wand and change anything in the music industry for women, for queer folks. What would you change? First wave of the wand. I'm sure the list is probably long. Off the top of your head, what would you change?
0: I guess I have to go with the first two things that came to my mind which is that those areas where women are marginalized, that it moves right up to 50%. And the other is that judgment disappears, that just the sense of community takes over. And if the sense of community takes over, then women will move up to 50%.
1: Love it. How would you like to close today? What song would you like to close with? (gasps) Well, we have to close with the wheel, don't we? I think so. That's what I was going to say too. (laughs) Anything else that you want to tell us about this song? That I felt an urgency to write it. Like it was bubbling up in
0: me like a volcano and I was taking care of the kids and I couldn't get a moment to myself. And I called someone to come babysit and I said, I have to get by myself. I have to write something. And she came I went in this big closet, locked myself in, and the song came, like, almost whole instantly. And I was consumed with this fire for John Leventhal, and I sensed that there was transformation ahead for me, even though there was going to be hell to crawl through to get there.
2: How long was I?
1: with thanks to Roseanne Cash. Thank you for being with us on Shiro's. Thank you for being such a Shiro and congratulations on 30 years of the wheel. Well,
0: Carmel, thank you for being a Shiro and congratulations on three years of Shiro's. Thank you.
1: Many thanks to Roseanne Cash for being with us. The 30th Anniversary Deluxe Edition of The Wheel is out now on Rumble Strip Records, distributed by 30 Tigers. She-Rose is produced by me, is mixed and mastered by Kelly Drake. Our original theme music is by Lucius. She-Rose is also a nationally syndicated radio show. You can visit she to find out more and support our work with Patreon or merch from the She-Rose shop. Keep in touch on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Carmel Holt or find us at She-Rose Radio. And please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast that helps us grow and bring you more sheroes until next time. Remember, music is our superpower. I'm Carmel Holt. Thanks for listening.